1: what to do tonight is get into the seven trumpets one of the constant difficulty we face while studying the book of revelation is that we are tempted to lose ourselves in the details in the specific images and symbols that we see and lose track of the big picture what is the intent of the book And in order to counteract that, what we're going to do tonight is take a walk through the seven trumpets. We're not going, we're not going to attempt to understand this text tonight. We're going to highlight areas where we have questions. We're going to try and see how it weaves a rational and logical story. And we're going to try and see how it is connected to what we have seen prior. Recall that we've seen so far two major parts. Three, actually, the introduction, then the seven letters, where Jesus walks among the churches and pronounces seven covenantal lawsuits to each of the churches, highlighting specific problems specific issues that these churches are facing and warning them and directing them about what to do next in view of what is to come the seven letters cannot be taken independently of the rest of the book they're there because of the rest of the book and the lesson for all of us is that god shows no partiality he will judge all the living and all the dead But to those who are of his household, he shows mercy. And to those who are not of his household, he shows justice. First, because he wants them to convert. And second, because he wants to judge them. The seven seals, the opening of the seven seals, shows us the. it is a preparation for what is to come. God is preparing His judgment and sending warning signals. And the purpose of those warning signals is for repentance. Effectively, the warning seals are there to prepare the church and the world for what is to come. Beginning with the seven trumpets, the judgment is taking place only partially, not fully. And the seven trumpets are preparing for the seven bowls of wrath, where the judgment is consummated, where the judgment is complete. We've seen that what connects all those parts together is the liturgy. Everything is done in a liturgical context. This is not done in a context of a human military activity where you have a headquarters and you have generals and are planning their battles and the attacks and they're watching how this is unfolding. It doesn't happen this way with God. God does not need that. We need that because we are weak. We need that because we are not God. We resort to physical strength and might because that's all we've got. God doesn't work this way. God has spiritual might and strength, which is embedded in the liturgy, which is lived out by the faithful and which brings about His will and His decree. We've seen already that Christ is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and it is His will that is unfolding throughout of history. And this is going to be highlighted again in the seven trumpets. It is this combination of the liturgical activity of God with the covenant that bring sense to the book of Revelation. It is the liturgy and the covenantal activity of judgment, of blessings, and curses, when put together, bring sense to the book of Revelation. Therefore, the book of Revelation is not purely about the end times, is not purely about pre-70 A.D., It is about every age of the church. It is the unfolding of the will of God throughout the age of the church, the new age, the last age. It shows us how God establishes His church, how God continuously reestablishes His church, and how God rules the world through the church. A good image to keep in mind for understanding the way God rules the world through the church is the sun and the moon. As if you recall, when Jesus died on the cross, the sun and the moon were joined together. There was an eclipse. You can think of the sun as being the spiritual authority of the church in the world. And you can think of the moon as being the temporal political powers of kingdoms and nations in the world. Both exist and both serve a purpose. The sun does not overtake the moon, meaning the church is not trying to take away the secular authorities. It is not the purpose of the church to rule the secular world. That's not its mission, her mission or her mandate. But what the church does is that it illuminates the secular powers. It gives them their spiritual and moral authority, just as the sun illuminates the moon. The moon has its role to play. It it lights up our night. Therefore, it is the light in the night. The sun is the light in the day. It's much stronger, yet both are needed. What is key here, and you always have to remember that, it is, and that is just as Christ rules the world through His church, Christ rules the world through political powers. Political powers, countries, nations, kingdoms, are established to fulfill the rule of Christ in the world once you have a firm grasp on this concept, once you stop opposing political powers to the church, never forgetting their enmity at times, such as when you have communism, but once you understand that Christ rules through both, you begin to realize that just as Christ gives us his decrees through encyclicals, through councils, through the teachings of the church, Christ also gives us his decrees through the activity of nations. Both express his kingship. Do you understand that? The reason why I'm emphasizing this is because all too often we tend to underestimate the importance of politics. We live in a world that has turned cynical when it comes to politics because all too often we assume that politicians, like mechanics, are corrupt. All too often we make that assumption because most of us, if none of us, are politicians. So more, more often than not we speak of that which we do not know, just as most of us, if not all of us, are not mechanics. Any mechanics here? So, and and that is fundamentally detrimental to our society when, when the citizen loses faith in the political expression of power. All right? And it is something that must be overcome and must be fought. It is not a Catholic attitude. Because... Recognize that when we lose faith in the political system, in politics in general, implicitly we are preparing our hearts to lose faith in the church. Because they have much in common. They receive the same, they have the the same source of light, which is Christ. They are here for different purposes. One is to regulate the secular lives of the citizens the other is to regulate the spiritual lives of the children of God and to illuminate and to teach all nations hence both are needed both expresses his will and we're going to see through the seven trumpets that God's will the will of Christ is expressed through political means it was true before 70 AD it is still true today what, we, what I'm planning on doing today is just walk you through those chapters, primarily because I suspect that uh, most of you have not read them lately. And I would like to walk you through them and give you an assignment for next week, and that is to read those chapters at least three times. Familiarize yourself with the imagery and try to see what are the areas... Where you are challenged, where your areas where you do not understand the purpose and meaning of the text. So with that, turn to chapter eight, verse seven. The seven trumpets cover six chapters. from chapter eight, verse seven through chapter 14, verse 20, the last verse in chapter 14. They are structured in a similar way to the seals the first four trumpets occur, just as we had the first four seals, then there is an interlude between the fourth trumpet and the fifth, just as we had an interlude before, between the fourth seal and the fifth, then the three last seals are the longest, with the sixth being the longest of all. Although in the case of the trumpet, the seventh is also also quite long. And quite a bit of, you know, there are quite the 6th the, the, the the and the 7th uh, trumpet are filled with images and with events. Not the least of which are the portents that appear in heaven, the woman that is closed with the sun and the moon under her feet, the beast, the dragon, then the beast that comes out of the sea, the beast that comes out of the land, and the number of the beast, the dreaded 666. All those are part of the trumpets. Let's therefore go through them and try to understand or try to understand what is it that we don't understand. And then next week we will begin digging in and making sense of the trumpets. Verse 7, The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, which fell on the earth. And a third of the earth was burnt up, and a third of the trees were burnt up, and all green grass was burnt up. Always keep in mind the uh, Alice in Wonderland syndrome. Do not immediately attempt to apply a literal, literalist meaning to the words, otherwise it will lead you to absurdity. So, for instance, when it says the third of the trees were burnt up, what does that mean? God took the earth, you know, made three pies, you know, out of it, and said, "Okay, any, mini, miney, this one." Okay, go ahead, burn all the trees up. That's it. We reach our quota, one third exactly. So it makes no sense, right? It 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 harkens back to our friend who just showed up here, and you told him, "Give me a break," and he goes out and buys you exactly. One break, right, Or somebody who wants to hit the road gets a sledgehammer and starts hitting the road. right be careful. those images that you see here are so powerful, and they hit a chord in us in our core because we're concerned they're so the images are so powerful with. Fire mixed with blood raining from heaven, and an earth, you know trees being burnt up, and all that—that that we are compelled to immediately jump to conclusions about their nature because we want to make sure that we're safe, or if we're not safe, we want to understand, you know, what the casualties are. All too often, a self-centered reading of the Book of Revelation is one of the challenges that we have to face. Our skin is in the game. So, instead of reading the book for its own sake, we read it as a survival guide. Let's find out what the plan is, and then let's find a way to evade it or survive. And that clouds our understanding. Keep focus on the kingship of Jesus Christ. The first question, those of you taking notes, Those would be um, things that are well worth writing. What up with the trumpets? Why is it seven trumpets? Why is it not seven accordions or seven guitars or seven harmonicas? Why trumpets? Is it that in heaven they don't have musical instruments necessary? I want you to think about the trumpets. Those of you who were here when we went through the series on symbols should already know the answer. And likewise, when we went through the covenantal history, you should know the answer to why trumpets. I suppose that by now, no one is, is questioning why there's seven trumpets. If, you, you, if, if you've been with us since the beginning of the study and you're still questioning why is it 7, I have a suggestion for you. Start doing some push-ups. Obviously, the image is not concrete. Why? Have you ever tried to mix hail and fire? Hail is made out of what? Water. What about mixing fire and blood? Okay? So you need to move away from a literalistic image trying to imagine hail mixed with fire and blood. All right? Good luck. It's really hard to imagine hail mixed with fire and blood. And then please don't try to ask this question, hmm, what is the chemical composition of the mixture? Don't go there. All right? it'd be the wrong approach. This is not about a composite. It's about three elements which are important in their own rights. And their presence should lead you to ask the following question. You can understand that hail is made out of water and you can imagine that there is water up there. Where's the fire coming from? And more importantly, whose blood it is? Those are the kind of questions you want to ask yourself. I'm going to answer them right now. I just want to lead you to some of the important questions that will help you unlock these. this text. Now, when they fell on earth, what happened? They fell on earth, and then the... The third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees, and all the gra- green grass was burnt up. What does that suggest? What happens when trees and grass and earth is burned up? What is the consequence of that? Famine. Right? Famine. Now if you recall from Leviticus and Deuteronomy, one of the aspect of the curse is what famine famine is one of them so that's what we're dealing with here now do you think that do you really think that when god wants to bring about a famine he's going to be sending fire i mean hail mixed with fire and blood is that how he caused famine no it happens through natural and political upheaval that's how it happens All right? That's what I'm telling you. Do not let go of the the kingship of Christ through political means. Because then you don't understand how these things are actually applied in our lives. This is a spiritual imagery. It's a vision that John has representing a reality on earth. It does not mean it's going to happen physically the way it's described. If you try to force it this way, as I said earlier, you will get into um, a really absurd concept, or you'll have to conclude, well, yeah, that's, of course, a consequence of a nuclear attack, and then you have artificial snow, and, I mean, you're going to go there, right? And then you turn the book of Revelation into science fiction, or prophecy fiction, whatever you want to call it. That's the first trumpet. The second trumpet was blown, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was, thr- was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Again, we cannot apply this image literally. What does it mean to say that a third of the sea was became blood? Is it, is it sort of a, a section of the sea that became blood? Vertically speaking, or is it maybe the top third? You can't apply that image this way, right? Questions to ask yourself here is, something like a burning mountain. Think about, think about passages in the gospel where there is a mountain being thrown into the sea. And ask yourself, which mountain was that? Notice the mountain was burning. Fire is the common element here. And the impact of that mountain thrown into the sea is to turn, is to cause economic upheaval. The living creatures in the sea are dead. And ships are destroyed. But it's only a third, so it is not a complete economic, it's, it's partial. Just as on the land, the famine is partial. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers, and on the fountains of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died of the water because it was made bitter. Again, it's hard to really imagine a star falling on rivers and sources of water. Right? With pinpoint accuracy, avoiding everything else. All right, so let's not force this image into a physical reality where it does not belong. Obviously, this is not the case. What is known what, what was known about warm wood was that it's, a, it's an herb that causes water to be bitter. And if you drink it over a long period of time, it will poison you. Key here is a long period of time. Okay? So, again, what is being hit here are sources of portable water. So, we've seen crops destroyed We've seen the food from the sea being destroyed, and now we're seeing water being destroyed all through fire. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of the light was darkened, and a third of the day was kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. When you, If you recall the purpose of sun, moon, and stars you know that it indicates the longevity of a kingdom. It is used as a clock. So, when this happens, it is essentially saying there is disruption in the functioning of nations, in the way they work. Again, this is not about physical sun, moon, and stars being destroyed. This is not about some sort of a cosmic upheaval causing all that to happen. It is about the meaning of those symbols and the impact they have on our lives. So when you put all four trumpets together, the picture that is drawn is that of famine and of political upheaval that goes with it, caused by fire. We'll go into more details on on these symbols as we walk through them later. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew in mid-heaven, Woe, 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 to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the three other trumpets which the three angels are about to blow. So the eagle, if you recall from the symbols, an eagle is a symbol of what? Strength and speed. Strength and speed. And... The eagle is pronouncing a triple woe. What is a triple woe? It is the worst type of curse. Woe, woe, woe. In mid heaven, mid heaven means at the zenith, therefore, it is seen by all. It indicates a universal woe extending across all nations. All right Now we will, under, we, will, we will sit down and think and reflect about why is this eagle doing that? Who's hearing the eagle? And why is that triple woe pronounced? For now, let's not worry about it. All that we have to understand is that there is a marked difference between the first four woes, the first four curses that have hit, and all are hitting the natural environment and they're hitting infrastructure if you want, to speak in modern terms. They have not touched humans yet. Humans have not been touched directly. They have only been touched indirectly. Now, this is about to change with the next three woes. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key of the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green growth or any tree, but only those of mankind who have not the seal of God upon their foreheads. They were allowed to torture them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torture was like the torture of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, and death will fly from them. Before we get into the appearance of the locusts, we, John St. John does not see the star falling. He sees a star that is already fallen. Notice he says a fallen star, not a falling star. And this star is given the keys to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Anytime the um, passive voice is used, he was given the keys understand by it a Hebraic thought process where somebody does not want to say the name of God. He doesn't want to say God gave him the keys. He was given the keys. God, therefore, is implied as a subject. So anytime you hear the passive voice, he was given the keys. This was given to them. Understand that the action proceeds from God. If you recall from the letters, Christ clearly stated that he holds the keys to death and Hades. This key is no longer in the hands of Satan. It is in the hand of Christ. Yet it is Christ who hands this key to this fallen star. What is this fallen star? Obviously a demon. Obviously a demon. So in effect... Christ is handing the key to the bottomless shaft, to the pit, to a demon and allowing this demon to open it. Understand by this that even communist Russia was serving the purpose of Christ. There isn't a kingdom that escapes this rule. Whether for good or for evil, they will end up doing his bidding, no matter what. It's inescapable. We will come back and understand the image used, the shaft, the pit. It is very important. It's actually a critical image for what is going to happen later. Now, think of it, therefore, in a context of economic disruption, famine, the shaft is open, darkness is added to the existing darkness. Remember when we said that, the remember in the fourth trumpet, the sun is darkened, the day is darkened, the night is darkened, meaning there is confusion. People can't find their way the way they want to. Added to this physical, material darkness is another kind of darkness, spiritual one. Do you think these locusts are actually physical locusts? Of course not. Of course not. They cannot be physical locusts. Have you ever looked at a locust? Right, It's a grasshopper. Alright? It's a grasshopper. Let's read the description. You'll understand that this cannot be in no way a physical locust. In appearance, the locusts, I'm reading from verse 7 in chapter 9, were like, Horses, a horse, a grasshopper, okay, big grasshopper. big grasshopper, yes, arrayed for battle on their heads were what looked like crowns of gold, their faces were like human faces, their hair like woman's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth, killer locusts, all right, They had scales like iron breastplates and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails like scorpions and stings and their power of hurting men for five months lies in their tails. They have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek he is called Apollyon. What are they? Demons. Alright? Remember, right, wh- right from the beginning, we have four creatures around the throne of God. What do they look like? They have animal forms. Remember the four creatures that are surrounding the, the, the throne of God? They have animal forms. One has the head of a lion. The other has the head of a man. The third has the head of a bull. Right? The fourth has the head of an eagle. Are these real animals? No. Those are angelic powers. And the only way for God to express the power of these angelic beings is by using visual imagery we can relate to. So as we walk through the composite image and we look at the details, we will be able to derive the strength of these demons do you understand if you have the symbols of scripture embedded in your head this reads like a code you can Im- immediately tell oh i understand now what, what what the characteristics of these demons all right the question is, one of the characteristics of the locust. No. Remember that when locusts attack, what do they do? They, they cause major famine. But in this case, those locusts are not there to harm the grass or the trees. They're given specific orders. Do not harm any of this. Only harm those who do not have the seal of God on their forehead. So imagine these humans being attacked in the way the grass is being attacked by locusts. It gives you an idea of the power behind this curse. Alright? This is not physical. Please, don't go home imagining hordes of locusts with crowns and heads like lions and women's hair and okay you you would you would actually deprive yourself from the real meaning behind the text but take that physical image as a driver to help you understand the spiritual meaning behind it and the power that it expresses which is what you really need here I'll um, I'll ask a question and I'll answer it immediately why 5 months There are interpreters who come up with very, very interesting and convoluted explanation of why five months. But there actually is a very simple answer. And that has to do with the season during which locusts can actually appear. It's a season of five months. So effectively, when it says... It attacked them during five months. It means they were there for the whole season. Imagine having locusts from the beginning of the season all the way through to the end. It gives you an idea of the magnitude, the intensity of that attack. It is unrelenting. That's the driver behind that image. Right. One key element that is very interesting... In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, and death will fly from them. Effectively, these men who are spiritually afflicted, or being stung spiritually by these demons, will, will want to die, but they will not commit suicide. They would want to die, but they will not commit suicide. Ironically, the saints long to die and also will not commit suicide alright this is highlighting the difference between the two attitudes those who are looking at death as the anti-chamber of the bridal room and those who look at death as the door to hell and humanity today as we speak is split in two There are those who are alive and then there are those who are zombie. They're physically alive, but they're dead. The two groups, people of the two groups smell the same, look the same. And you can't tell them apart physically, but they are fundamentally different. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels were released who had been held ready for the hour, the day, the month, and the year to kill a third of mankind. The number of the troops of cavalry was twice, ten thousand times ten thousand. I heard their number, and this was how I saw the horses in my vision. The riders wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion heads, lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur issued from their mouths. By these plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur issuing from their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. Their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot either see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their immorality or their thefts. So when a sixth trumpet is released, four angels who were bound were released. And they bring with them an army that, if you were to translate it in modern terms, would amount to 200 million horsemen, which you know leads uh, uh, Hal Lindsey in surmising that it's going to be China attacking Israel, because which other country can actually amass 200 million horsemen? And the question that must be asked is why on earth would China need 200 million horsemen to attack Israel? But be it as it may. um, What is missed when the translation is given in that specific number, 200 million, instead of twice myriads of myriads or twice 10,000 times 10,000. There's a reason why St. John said it this way. Right? Why? Well, what is a thousand? It's 3 times 10. Right? 10 is a number of completeness. 10, 10, 10. Right? That's a thousand. So, 10,000 is innumerable. Alright? 10,000 times 10,000 is innumerable twice. Two times 10,000 times 10,000 is innumerable three times. It's innumerable. I mean, it's beyond imagination. That's what's being highlighted here. Not any specific number. But the sheer intensity and power of the attack. That is effectively a horde, an army that cannot be conquered by those whom they are attacking. So what is St. John's focus? Is he trying to show us how powerful demons are? Is that his intention? I mean, he's just told us how numerous those guys are, and by the description of those horses, you know that these are not the good guys. These are the bad guys. So, why is he describing them in all this? Why is he giving them that much importance? So much that actually we can feel overpowered by this description. Why does he do that? The reason is simple. He's highlighting the glory of God. His judgment is taking place, there's nothing to stop it. It is not so much about highlighting the powers of demons as it is highlighting the authority and glory of God even through demons which is a concept that we have a really hard time we have a hard time with this concept the omnipotence of God is something we don't completely understand and understandably so But it isn't something we reflect on enough when we say God is omnipotent, all-powerful. Which means that His power and authority extends throughout the ages on all creatures. Here is one thought that I'm going to propose to you, which, which I'm willing to bet that at least half of you would be shocked by it. You know that God is a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, don't you? Did you know that there was absolutely nothing that would have prevented the Holy Spirit from bringing forth a fourth divine person? There's absolutely nothing preventing the Holy Spirit from bringing forth a fourth divine person. We have an implicit limitation to God because we assume that God cannot be anything but a trinity. That it isn't in the power of God to be more than a trinity. You see how little we understand the omnipotence and the power of God? And now think about that. Instead of doing just that, instead of bringing forth from all eternity a fourth divine person, God Decided to create us. Reflect on this. Think about that. I said that instead of God willing from all eternity to bring forth a fourth divine person, which is something God can absolutely and completely do, for if God could not do that, God would not be God. He would not be omnipotent. Hmm? God decided instead. To create us. Yes, a fourth divine person like the three who existed. Yes, exactly. We implicitly limit what God can do in thinking what God is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because that's what God is. And God can't be anything else. That's not true. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because it is part of the will of God to be so. is isn't because God can't be anything else. Understand that. Don't limit the power of God. And instead, God created us. No, it's not a big mistake. It is really and truly, it's a meditation that will, that will get you to dive headfirst into the unfathomable, unfathomable mercy of God. Truly unfathomable. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down and the angel whom I saw standing on sea and land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever who created heaven and what is in it the earth and what is in it and the sea and what is in it that there should be no more delay but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel the mystery of God as he announced to his servants the prophets should be Fulfilled. We will spend time in detail studying that angel. Obviously, he's a very different nature than the other angels. He has one foot on land, one foot on sea. The land is Israel, the symbol of Israel. The sea is the symbol of the Gentiles. He's got one foot on both, he rules both. And he just say, said that. The mystery that was announced by the prophets is going to be fulfilled. If you recall our discussion on the mystery, as St. Paul understands it, you know what that mystery is. And that mystery is the church. The church. And we'll come back to those texts in St. Paul when we studied this passage more closely. But what is therefore? Here's the key of all those trumpets and all those seals that were open. The seals were open and warnings were sent. And then the trumpets were sounded, the world is judged is judged right now partially, in preparation for what? For the fulfillment of the mystery. The establishment of the church on earth. That is In my mind, the main point of the book of Revelation, the establishment of the church on earth. How God conquers the nations and how God rules the nations through the church. One quick point about that scroll. The seven thunders sounded and he was about to write down what he heard, but he was asked to seal it up. That ought to tell you that we are not at the end times. The action of sealing up something is keeping it secret because its time has not yet come. Its time of fulfillment has not yet come. And that tells you, therefore, why we say that it is the church that has the fullness of the truth. Of Jesus Christ, and that it is not possible for someone to think that the Bible contains all the truth of Christ, because there are things which have been sealed up and not written in this book. And it is the church that has been made the keeper of these things to be revealed to us as is necessary. And here you can think in particular about Fatima. We'll come back and revisit this scroll and what it means when we hit this passage. Then the voice which I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll which is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will be bitter to your stomach, but sweet as honey in your mouth. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. So there is still prophecy to be brought about for the purpose of what? Conversion and judgment. God does things in a repeated motion with the hope that, more will convert. He will warn us once. He will chastise us once. He will wait. He will chastise us again. He will wait. Then He will hit a third time. And the whole idea is the extension of His mercy. So that more sinners may repent. Repent. And there may be no one who can have an excuse when he stand before his judgment saying, you didn't give me a chance. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out for it is given over to the nations. And they will trample, and will trample over the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant my two witnesses power to prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. And then what follows is a description of those two witnesses. By the way, 1,260 days is three and a half years. All right? And we'll come back to the symbolism behind the three and a half years later and who those two witnesses might be. I'll grant you this is a difficult passage. And their power is described about what they can and cannot do. The power here, I'll give you a hint, I'll let you think about it, is emblematic of two very important persons in Scripture. Two very important persons in Scripture. And the hint I'll give you is that these are two persons from the Old Testament, and that the only ones who appear in the New Testament. Moses and Elijah. Okay? So, think about that, in terms of Moses and Elijah. Then the seventh angel, if you drop down to verse 15, blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. You can see now the transition from the kingdom of Israel, the old covenant, to the kingdom of Israel of the world the universal kingdom right so there's rejoicing in heaven because these woes these trumpets ultimately are bringing the victory of the church that's why they rejoice in heaven now verse 19 and god's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple And there are flashes of lightning, loud noises, peals of thunder and earthquake and hail and heavy hail. The ark is no longer on earth. The ark is now in heaven. Now, remember, is that heaven as in paradise where you see God as he is? No. This is liturgical heaven. Right? This is the place where earth and heaven meet in the liturgy. And then the temple is open and we see the ark. Now, those of you who've been to certain Eastern Rite liturgies will remember that what they typically do during the liturgy of the Word, they have a triptych that actually closes the altar. The altar is closed. And when they are about to celebrate the liturgy of the Eucharist, they open it up. And the Ark is seen in the temple of God. All right? That's the meaning of this. That's why they do it. Verse chapter twelve deals with a woman, close with the sun and the moon under her feet, and she brings about a male child. And then there is a battle between Michael and the dragon, and the dragon and his followers are no no longer. There's no longer a place found for them in the heavens. And they fall on earth. And the typical difficulty we have with this is, but wait a minute, this is, a, this is Satan. What is he doing up in heaven? What you need to understand, again, that this is not a literal meaning. It isn't that they were in heaven all that, all that time, and now, finally, they're thrown down. No. Being in heaven is what? It's a position of power reserved to whom? In the mentality of the ancients. The gods. The gods. So to be thrown down on earth is to effectively lose power. You've been toppled. Your kingdom is no more. That's the meaning behind it. I should like to point out to you that the battle happens after the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant is seen, not before. It is the presence of the Ark of the Covenant that gives Michael and the angels the power that they did not have before to actually defeat Satan. Angelic power is Eucharistic. Angelic power is Eucharistic. Chapter 13. I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems upon its horns, etc. I'll tell you right away what this beast is. It is Rome. And I will explain to you why. In the meantime, go back to Daniel and read the four beasts. And you will see that this one is an amalgam of all of them. It's the worst of them all. It resembles in a certain degree the, the fourth beast of the of Daniel, but it's worse. It is the worst of them all. It is Rome. All right? And the Mies was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. This is bringing us back to the letters with the emperor worship, right? Where the emperor takes upon himself what is to God. And, and we will go through that in more details. Then I saw another beast which rose out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. This is very briefly the priesthood authority in the temple. It has, it's a lamb. So therefore it's a, it has a resemblance to Christ, the lamb. It has two horns, right? So it's the, it, it, it basically is wearing the mitre but it speaks like a dragon. So it is the priestly authority of the temple which allies itself with Rome and in the persecution of the Christians. We've seen that before. That is the historical meaning at the time of John. Throughout history, it is any priest, any bishop, any cardinal who prefers political power, temporal power, to serving Christ. I'm not going to... Yeah, I mean, I don't want to go through names right now. All I'm saying is that I am insisting on only one point. Let's not. We need to understand the Jewish priesthood in its historical context. It was back then the enemy to the establishment of the church throughout the ages. You have other enemies that show up, which have nothing to do with the Jewish priesthood of the temple. Right, right. That's what I'm trying to say. The forest, the forest that was in... Yes. Yes. Like the false bishop that was removed would be one example. All right. Then the number is given. The number is 666. We'll come back and revisit this number and what it means. Um, then I looked at low on Mount Zion to the Lamb, and with him 144,000. So here is now the other side of the battle. Things are about. To change. And Christ is therefore waging battle through those 144,000 who are faithful to Him. Ironically, how do they wage battle? By suffering. How do they wage battle? By being martyrs. How do do they wage battle? By being faithful. This is not a battle waged with arms and powers and weapons. This is a battle waged with the rosary and kneeling and praying and being faithful and being contemplative and being in the presence of the Eucharist. That's how the battle is waged. That's the essence of that battle. Then there is a series of three angels that come flying in mid-heaven, one announcing an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth. That is the last covenant. It is an eternal covenant. It will never go away. The church will never go away until the consummation of the ages. It's an eternal gospel. And it's announced to all those who are on earth. Therefore, you understand the partial judgment because God is still extending mercy and wanting to save all those who have been hit by those woes. Right? And then the next one over is about the fall of Babylon. We'll go back and discuss what Babylon means, which Babylon they have in mind. And then there is a call of endurance to the saints. And finally, we come to this vision where one like a son of man is sitting on a cloud and he's holding a sickle because it is time to reap the harvest. And right after that, it is time to reap the grapes. And those grapes are collected, are harvested, and they are placed into the great winepress of the wrath of God. If anybody is familiar with a book that has become a movie about the Depression, and the title of that book was The Grapes of Wrath, that's what it comes from, from here. That's the source of that title. The great winepress of the wrath of God, and the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse brittle for 1,600 stadia. And again, If you have in your book a translation that tells you 200 miles, they're missing the point. All right, they're missing the point. 1600 is what? 1600. It's 1600, right? It's four times two, times a hundred. Think about that. And this will lead us straight into the wrath, the cups of wrath. And the cups of wrath are altogether of a different nature because they're final. There is no repentance in the case of the cups of wrath. Judgment is poured out. And right after the end of the cups of wrath, what do we see coming down from heaven? Actually, there's one more step, which is the judgment of the heartless city. And after that, it is the coming down of the new Jerusalem, the establishment of the church. So I hope that by now you're starting to connect the dots in your mind about this book and see how it works as a logical unit. All about how Christ will establish His church despite great odds, despite seemingly impossible odds to conquer, and yet He conquers them. And here's the comforting part. What is applied to the church through this book morally applies to each and every one of us. If I were to make a moral reading of this, you will see that the seven letters apply to us personally, to our soul. Where in each one of us, in our soul, there are good parts and there are parts that we have to improve on. Then the seals, as they are being opened, it is Christ who tenderly and carefully is Cleaning our soul and preparing us, because we're still too young. We've just begun on our journey. As we walk deeper into this journey, we get to the trumpets, the what Saint John of the Cross would call the night of the senses, where Christ starts to purify our senses. And then, once we move into the cups of wrath, we are now in a in a in a, in a dark night of the soul, where Christ purifies our soul spiritually and after that our soul becomes like the bride coming down from heaven all adorned and ready to receive him he does that despite impossible odds even when we think that it's impossible that he's not going to do it that things are completely blocked and locked and there's no way out he's at work in us if we persevere. Blessed are those who endure. Blessed are those who persevere. That is the message. God bless you. We have time for some questions. Yes. Um, just the question is uh, if God rules the world through Political powers, what about the separation of church and state in the United States? The, as I said earlier, it is the understanding of the Catholic Church that there ought to be separations of power. This is nothing against, this is nothing that is contrary to the teaching of the Church. The Church has no jurisdiction over secular matters. The church has jurisdiction over, th- over issues that have to do with morality and theology. Now, there are areas where both powers are concerned. And if the secular power is wise and truly is acting in a godly manner, they will cooperate with the church. But when they are not and then when, when they consider the church to be one source of truth, among many others, you will end with a political power that is effectively corrupt. I mean by that that it is going contrary to its nature, because its nature is to serve the natural law, the law that God has given us. Hence, in principle, there is absolutely nothing wrong between the separation of the two powers. It is willed by God because he governs through both of them. What happens in practice is that one power, typically the secular, wants complete freedom and independence from the other. And hence, ends up, being, ends up implementing laws which are contrary to God's will. And in that case, what is it manifesting? It is effectively manifesting the curses. God still rules. We make it easy or we make it hard, but there is no escaping from the fact that he rules. Yes. Correct. The the point is 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 that the Constitution requires us not to have a church state like you have in England, where there the Queen of England is also the head of the church, which is exactly what which is which is in harmony with the teaching of the Catholic Church. It is never the intent of the Catholic Church by her nature, to rule um, in matters that are effectively secular. There are times in the history of the church where the church found herself obligated to do so because of the corruption of the princes. But that's a different issue from the fundamental nature of the relationship between church and state. Now, the fact that we have, as I said, people using the separation of church and state as an excuse to push the church out is a deformation. It is a corruption of the political power. To what degree is the church responsible, or the members of the church are responsible, is again found in the book of Revelation. When Christ came, he first admonished the church. He went straight to the church, and told them, point blank, the areas that they need to take care of. And then, he turned around, and spoke to the world. And as I said earlier, the church... The world will be disoriented if the church is not properly oriented. So as Catholics, it behooves us not to think about how we're going to fix the problem in the world. Let us begin by taking care of our house. And once our house is in order, the world will follow. Any other questions? Yes. On the timeline about the establishment of the church... Does when I say that it is about the establishment of the church, do I mean the establishment of the church in the past, today, or in the future? And the answer is all three of them. And the new, and the, new the New Jerusalem is the church. Okay, the New Jerusalem coming down from heaven is the Catholic Church. But isn't that where in it now? Correct, but you need to. We are living in it now. It is established. When the text was written, the literal sense applied immediately to the epoch, the era in which John was living, where the church was not yet established. I'll give you the game plan. The church is not established until what? After the temple was destroyed. Yes, yes, you're absolutely right. Eschatologically, anagogically, you're right. The church is not established until the consummation of time. However, in the literal sense... When will the church be established? Think about that for a second. Christ said it. When will the church be established? Alright, let me ask this other question. It is established on whom? Peter. Peter as what? The rock. Why do you have to have a rock? Yes, foundation. That's the modern interpretation. We need a rock as foundation. You're right. But a rock... Serves a different purpose. A far more important purpose. Yes? It's the foundation, yes. But the rock in the conception of the Jews in the times of Jesus has a far more important role to play. Again, you're not thinking covenantally. Where did... Abraham, sacrifice, Isaac. Yeah, yeah, sacrifice. You see, we are so inclined to think in material terms that we immediately think about, what. Well, of course, I need for the foundation. No, 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 no. That's secondary. The rock is not a foundation because it's solid. The rock is a foundation because it is an altar of sacrifice. Think covenantally. Think liturgically. That gives you the key. So let me go back to your question to my question. When was the church established? Pardon? Uh uh-uh. uh uh-uh. the church was born on the cross. When was the church established? Bingo. The death of Peter in Rome. That is the key. To me, that's the interpretive key as we will see later for that angel that comes down and seals the shaft with a rock and its establishment of the reign of a thousand years. What is the reign of a thousand years? What is a thousand symbolically?
0: World, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10.
1: Right? A long time. That's all that it is. The millennium that they keep on grappling with? Are you post, pre, mid? What is it? The angel comes down with what? He, with a lid that seals the bottom of the shaft. Okay, in Jerusalem, in the mosque right now, I've told you that. What is it called? The dome of what? Huh. Why is it the dome of the rock? Is it because it has a rock as a foundation? There's a rock in it. Is it a foundation? There's nothing built on it. Not Mecca. The dome of the rock in Jerusalem. Right? Why? Because that rock is the rock on which Abraham sacrificed Isaac. That rock actually seals a shaft, an abyss. There is a physical abyss underneath it. Muslims go there and they pray and they write letters to the dead and they slide it under the rock. You get it? So when, when he says right here, he opened the abyss, what does that mean? He actually opened up that rock. It's the end of the temple. See, we don't understand the symbology because we don't realize what it means to those who lived at that time. We substitute our own understanding. A rock is a foundation, then we miss the point. No, it isn't about it being a foundation. It is about being the lid that close the abyss. So what is the lid today closing the abyss? Uh-uh. Not the church. The rock. Bingo. Peter. What they do with it is a different issue. Let's stick, let's stick to this point. The point I'm trying to make to you is that the foundation, Right. the, the reason why this rock is important is because Christ is going to take that rock... Peter enclosed the shaft of the abyss where Satan reigns. And where does Satan reign back then? Rome. And hence Christ will reign for a thousand years. That is the interpretive key that allow us to make sense of this book without resorting to fantastic explanations about well you know right before the end of the world Christ will come and reign for a thousand years what is it a thousand in one day is it a thousand in one hour I mean you, you see what I'm saying we don't have to shut down our our brains to understand the text if we grasp the importance of the church and the liturgy and the minds of Christ it is the key no, that's different. Exactly, but, but, but that's a different... Uh, d- bear with me. That's a different interpretation. We talk about him, you know, the, the, the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. It's a different issue altogether. All, I'm tra- all I want you to understand right now is that you've got to have to change your concept of the rock. And why Christ said, you are the rock. And what is implied behind it. It isn't just a foundation to build upon, it is also a seal to close, to shut. And that's why, effectively, Satan is bound. What people don't realize, when they say, well, you know, look what the, the Crusades, look at the Inquisition, look at this. What they don't realize is that if the world did not have the church, we'd be dead by now. We'd have killed each other. It'd be over. What keeps Satan from using his full power is precisely the Catholic Church. Nothing else. That's the message. That's the mystery. That is the thing that blows the minds of the angel away because the angels could not do it, they could not defeat him, they could not stop him. The church can. That's our salvation. God bless you.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.